0: OpenTheBooks.com says it is the largest private repository of U.S. public sector spending. Adam Andrzejewski is the founder of OpenTheBooks.com and lives in Hinsdale, Illinois. The mission, he says, quote, post every dime online in real time of the expenditures of public money. In their 2022 annual report, Of OpenTheBooks.com, Alexander Fraser, a Scottish professor of history, is quoted saying, A democracy is always temporary in nature. It simply cannot exist as a permanent form of government. Democracy will continue to exist until the time that voters discover they can vote themselves generous gifts from the public treasury. Adam Andrzejewski, can you remember the moment that you decided you wanted to do something called OpenTheBooks.com?
1: So it was 2007, and I had searched around for a big idea to affect public policy in my home state of Illinois. In Illinois, it is the Super Bowl of corruption. And so I saw what former U.S. Senator Dr. Tom Coburn was doing at the federal level, partnering across the aisle on a nonpartisan basis to open the books for the first time in history – at the federal level. Obviously, he partnered with then Illinois U.S. Senator Barack Obama. This inspired my first uh, public advocacy, my first work um, to do the same in Illinois. So so we decided to pioneer this issue of aggressive, robust transparency first in Illinois, and then we took the mission writ large across the entire country.
0: How many people do you have working with you?
1: So today we've got about 35 full-time employees Our budget is about $3.1 million on the year. So the last time we talked, Brian, was 2017. We were about half that on budget, but we had about the same size workforce. So everyone's doing a little bit better today. Uh, Thankfully, uh, we've got a great team. They, uh, They work hard every 15 minutes, and they work to the end of the task rather than the end of the day.
0: So why are you based in Hinsdale, Illinois, and where is it?
1: So Hinsdale is a Chicago suburb. And this is where I'm raising my, my family. I've got three teenage girls, my wife, Carrie. We're celebrating 24 years of marriage this year. So OpenTheBooks.com actually, through the pandemic, moved to a completely remote model. So you're talking to me today from my home office right here in my hometown of Hinsdale, uh, right where I live. Um, we're set up on a remote model. I've, I've never met some of the journalists, for example, that have worked for us for a couple of years. We get great talent on a remote basis. And we've been actually able to create more of an impact without a physical office than we did when we were uh, tied to the office here in Illinois.
0: What can people find on your website?
1: You can find nearly every dime taxed and spent at every level of government across the entire country. That's federal, state, and local. To capture that spending, Over the course of the last two years, we filed 100,000 Freedom of Information Act requests, and we've captured nearly $20 trillion just in the past two years of federal, state, and local spending. Brian, we dig, we claw, and we keep digging and clawing.
0: So how does someone file a Freedom of Information uh, request?
1: So you first have to identify the officer that's going to receive your request at the public body. So what we've done at openthebooks.com is we've gone through 100,000 public bodies in the country and we've compiled the electronic record of who would receive our request. This goes into our Freedom of Information Act machine, which we've coded. So so a Freedom of Information Act request is simply a lawful request of a unit of government for them to produce public information that the citizen already owns. So it's a statutory process that citizens and organizations like ours follow to simply receive information we've already paid for the creation of.
0: If I read it right, and this is just one example, the vice president of the United States does not have to provide you with uh, the dollar amounts that the that uh, she pays people in that office.
1: So let's just go through some of the holes at the federal level. And you, the first one is the office of vice president. She claims immunity from federal Freedom of Information Act laws, and this has been on a bipartisan basis. Mike Pence claimed immunity uh, all the way back through the uh, 1991, I think the 1994 memo during the Clinton administration, where. The Department of Justice wrote a memo claiming that the office of vice president was not a federal agency and therefore not subject to the Freedom of Information Act. So we think she's the only elected official in the entire country that doesn't have to respond to, for instance, disclose her payroll information. Even members of Congress, while they're not subject to the Freedom of Information Act, they disclose their payrolls, their staffers, how much they make how much the people on their committees make. The White House is bound just every single year on July 1st to disclose their payrolls. Uh, Every single mayor, every single governor across the entire country must disclose the office of vice president one heartbeat away from the presidency is probably the only elected official not disclosing, for example, their payroll information.
0: Why does the president disclose it then?
1: Mandated by Congress. So, uh... Congress passed a law mandating the White House to disclose their payroll. So, for example, just a couple of weeks ago on July 1st, the Biden administration disclosed their payroll. At OpenTheBooks.com, we're always the first to grab that. For the last seven years, we were first out of the blocks on oversight of the Biden administration's payroll, as we have been each of those previous years. And so we know that the Biden administration has 524 employees that work for them. And year over year, they had 46% turnover of their staff.
0: Why so many? And how does it compare with previous administrations?
1: Well, you got to go all the way back to 1971 during the Richard Nixon administration. So in 1970, there was 250 White House staffers. In 1971, under Nixon, it jumped to 533 staffers. Uh, That was the modern day presidential staff headcount record until the first year of the Biden administration, 560 uh, staffers. And so uh, Biden is setting records in terms of the number of headcount. And Brian, to the extent that the White House headcount on their staff is a leading indicator of of a president's propensity to spend taxpayer dollars. It's Bidenomics that's hit the White House payroll. Conversely, Trump, he promised to do more with less. And he actually, he actually at the same point in his presidency he has had 80 staffers fewer than what Biden has today.
0: Let me pick just a number, because you have so many numbers on your website, and just ask you to explain it. I'm taking away from the head of, the, of uh, this particular uh, page on your website, top 10 takeaways. I'm going to read the first one. One hundred and three federal agencies outside of the Department of Defense spent $2.7 billion on guns, ammunition, and military-style equipment between fiscal years 2006 and 2019. It's inflation-adjusted. Nearly $1 billion was spent between fiscal years 2015 and 2019 alone. What's the point?
1: So this is the militarization of rank-and-file federal agencies. And so we're the subject matter expert in this space all the way back to 2016, When former U.S. Senator Tom Cobert and I penned the editorial at the Wall Street Journal, why does the IRS need guns? And so today, incredibly, there are more federal officers with arrest and firearm authority than there are United States Marines. There's 200,000 federal officers. There's 180,000 approximately U.S. Marines. Uh, There are 27 traditional law enforcement agencies under the Department of Justice or the Department of Homeland Security that have purchased about eighty percent of the guns and ammunition since 2006, but you have 76 traditional paper pushing, rank and file civil or regulatory agencies that have purchased, uh, inflation adjusted since 2006, between 400 million and 500 million, and a half billion dollars worth of guns, ammunition, and military style equipment. And one of those agencies is the Internal Revenue Service. And we've just updated the numbers. Post-pandemic, up through the first quarter of 2023, and here's the the new disclosures. Since 2006, the IRS has purchased 35 million dollars worth of guns, ammunition, and military-style equipment, and 10 million of that has happened since the pandemic. So, before the pandemic, we knew that the IRS owned. When you peek inside their gun locker, 4,500 weapons including 600 shotguns, 500 long barrel rifles, AR-15 style Smith and Wesson rifles. Since the pandemic, they've purchased $1 million worth of AR-15 Smith and Wesson rifles, a, a half million dollars worth of shotguns, and they have 5 million rounds of ammunition that they've stockpiled.
0: Do they explain anywhere why they need all this?
1: Well, they say we've reached out for comment over the years to them repeatedly. And the IRS response is that it's a dangerous world, and they deal with some of the worst actors in the world. Your drug traffickers, you know, on narcotics, your, you know, just, uh, you know, your, your, your terrorist organizations. So they say they need, to, they need to match the firepower. Our position on this is that this is a blurring of the lines. The tax man should not be the law enforcement man. And I think it's time to take a look at separating the law enforcement powers from the civil uh, authority powers.
0: How do you set up your company, Profit Versus Nonprofit?
1: We're a public educational charity, so we're a, we're a nonprofit organization.
0: Are you a 501c3 or other number?
1: Yeah, we're, we're a 501c3 organization. Uh, nonpartisan. We take on Democrats. We take on Republicans. We look for waste, fraud, corruption and taxpayer abuse. So, Brian, not only do we open the books, we audit them and the audits make national news.
0: Does anybody care?
1: Oh, people care. And we've chalked up some nice wins here in 2023.
0: Give us an example.
1: The first uh, win that we had was right away in January with the new Republican majority in the House. For two years previously, we'd run a public policy campaign on a transparency and legislation promoting the 72-hour uh, timeout to simply read the bill. It's probably 99% polling among regular people, but the politicians over the course of the last decade in Washington, D.C., Republicans and Democrats wanted nothing to do with it. We resurrected that. We ran it hard. We published uh, at the Wall Street Journal in my then column at Forbes nearly every speech I gave right on C-SPAN's Washington Journal repeatedly every single time that the Washington, D.C. passed an omnibus or minibus spending bill. We brought this up. We got tens of thousands of petition signatures on it. And the new Republican majority instituted this rule uh, when they took over uh, back in January. They coupled it up with another rule as well, and that is single-subject legislation. So now the bills are a lot smaller, and there's a 72-hour timeout to read them. And you saw this play out in the debt ceiling debate, where they did give 72 hours for the people, the politicians, the pundits, to tear that bill apart and give it oversight.
0: The President of the United States, if he takes the money, gets $400,000 a year. A member of Congress, what is it, 174, and it's been that for years, uh, but there is a new device that they are using in Congress that gets them more money that doesn't come out in that salary can you explain that
1: so Brian which device are you talking about for members of Congress yeah there's the ability
0: to you know get um money for transportation and lodging and that uh, you know the kind of money that doesn't show up in the salary and that's this just happened supposedly this year
1: okay i'm I'm unfamiliar with uh I know that they gave a pay increase to their staffers and they gave themselves more money to spend out of their legislative allotments than they had the previous years and it was a substantial increase, but I'm, I'm not familiar with the benefits that they conferred on themselves. And I'm not surprised by it, I'm just not familiar with it.
0: Well, let's go back to the $400,000 figure. How many people in working for the government get more than $400,000 a year? In other words, more than the president of the United States?
1: There are there are hundreds of thousands. So about every other year, we come out with an oversight report called "Mapping the Swamp," where we do ban the federal payroll and we take a look at that number. And it has grown up sharply on a year-over-year basis. I think the last time we did the report was uh, was was probably last summer and. And the, over a four-year period, the number of highly compensated federal employees making four hundred thousand or more, more than the president uh, had had jumped. I don't have I don't have all the numbers uh, in my head in terms of that report, but I I can in terms of those making more than a hundred thousand, that is now the average wage of a federal bureaucrat in Washington D.C. and a hundred and three out of the hundred and. Uh, 22 federal agencies, the average pay is now six figures, $100,000 a year.
0: One of your takeaway pages is about Dr. Anthony Fauci, and you say that in 2021 he made $456,028. Uh, why are they, Why does he make so much money compared to so many other? I mean, he makes more than the Supreme Court justices, more than the members of Congress and the Senate, and more than the President of the United States.
1: So in my then column at Forbes in January of 2021, we uh, showcased the fact that Dr. Anthony Fauci was the number one most highly compensated federal bureaucrat out-earning everybody, the president, four-star generals in the United States military, and all, all of his, all the, the two million bureaucrats at the federal level. He out-earned everybody. He was the most highly compensated. Uh, we also showcase the fact that his wife, Christine Grady, she's the chief bioethicist at Dr. Anthony Fauci's employer, the National Institutes of Health, she out-earned the vice president. Uh, we also showcase the fact that when Dr. Anthony Fauci retired, he retired on the largest federal pension in history. He uh, His retirement pension today, although it's not disclosed, it's not subject to the Freedom of Information Act, we can estimate it, at about three hundred and sixty-five, dollars $370,000 a year. What? Now, all of this information we didn't get from the agency itself. We had to file our request with other agencies just to quantify basic information like like how much he made. How do you do that? So we filed the request first with the National Institutes of Health. They ignored it. So we filed it with the Office of Personnel Management, and that's how we came up with the number.
0: Why wouldn't the... NIH, I mean, I've seen a list years ago of of lots and lots of people at NIH making as much as $300,000 a year. Why will they not give give you this money uh, because they are a part of the federal government?
1: Well, there was special rules for Dr. Anthony Fauci. For example, we had to file four federal lawsuits just to quantify basic information regarding Fauci, for instance, like his job contract, his job description, his ethical and financial disclosures. Uh, this took four federal lawsuits through our legal partner, Judicial Watch, just to get the basics on Fauci's, on Fauci's employment data. And all of it, when it came in, made national news. It led to four congressional hearings in 2022. You'll probably remember the January hearing with U.S. Senator Roger Marshall out of Kansas. He had Fauci in the hot seat and for three minutes questioned him on his finances. Uh, That was Fauci's code red moment where he melted down at the end of that questioning, calling the U.S. Senator on the hot mic, a moron. Uh, He said that he misled Congress. He misled the Senator and the American people. He said, my finances are fully transparent and had been for 50 some years but Fauci knew and U.S. Senator Roger Marshall knew that we had been suing on the question for the previous year and NIH had admitted to holding 1,200 pages of the Fauci financials that they had not released. We eventually got that information and we were able to prove that the Fauci household net worth went from $7 million to $12 million during the pandemic.
0: As you know, the highest paid, and I need you to break this down, but the highest paid individual that is associated with the federal government is the guy that runs the Tennessee Valley Authority. And I think the last thing I saw was he got $9 million salary last year. Um, they, I mean, the federal government started it. It's now a traded company and all that. But how does things like that work, and how much of that do you look into?
1: Well, and the football coach at West Point made more than Fauci as well. But whether you're the head of the Tennessee Valley Authority or the head football coach at West Point, you're not paid for. That, that compensation is not paid for by taxpayers. So Fauci is the most highly compensated taxpayer paid bureaucrat.
0: Any others that you found that uh, we don't know about or that you went after uh, to, to get their salaries?
1: Well, I think it's interesting that Francis Collins, he's the immediate past director of the National Institutes of Health. So it was Collins and Fauci that basically ran U.S. healthcare care policy during the pandemic. Uh, Collins left NIH and he went over to the White House payroll last year in 2022, and he was making $300,000 a year. Um, it is breaking news here on the podcast with you, Brian, that Collins then left the White House payroll. He's no longer there. There was not a press release uh, about this. There were, You know, I guess when Joe Biden said the pandemic is over, Collins left, but he left quietly and nobody even knew about it. Uh, we've been looking into White House payroll uh, and have it posted on our website at OpenTheBooks.com since the Obama administration in 2009, every single year. Nobody ever made three hundred thousand dollars except for Francis Collins.
0: On your website, there's a introduction letter and in that letter, I read it in the um, opening here before you got on uh, from a man named Alexander Fraser, who's a long deceased Scottish professor. and I'm going to read it again and ask you to tell me and us why you you chose to put this on your website. A democracy is always temporary in nature. It simply cannot exist as a permanent form of government. Democracy will continue to exist until the time that voters discover they can vote themselves generous gifts from the public treasury. There's more to that quote, but give us your reaction to why you put that in your on your on your website.
1: Because the average age of the world's uh, longest civil and strongest civilizations since the beginning of human history is about 200 years and Brian, here on July 4th, just a couple of weeks ago, America turned 247 years old from 1776. So America, the American experiment right now is cheating history. But let's take a look at the national debt, which we think is the number one threat to the long-term security of the United States. In 1980, it was less than $1 trillion. Forty years later, we are pushing $32.5 trillion dollars and so we think there's only one way back and that's the transparency revolution it has to be a movement of regular people from the grassroots from the ground up to hold our politicians accountable
0: as you know uh, when members of congress usually uh, senators leave money is often allocated to build a center at a university or somewhere in their home state that houses their archives. Senator Bob Byrd got one built at Shepherd University, even with an apartment in the basement for him uh, in the event that he needed it, he's now deceased. Senator Howard Baker got money for his site out there at the University of Tennessee. You've uh, spotted some of this, Uh, in recent departures by Senators Shelby and Senator Blunt and all that, how much money did they all get transferred to build a center in their honor?
1: So unfortunately, on a bipartisan basis, this practice of earmarking member-directed pet projects in their districts came back about a year and a half ago. And so, six months ago, in the year-end omnibus spending bill, there was sixteen billion dollars worth of these earmarks, seventy-five hundred and nine of these projects. Now, specific to the two U.S. to 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 the U.S. senators creating me monuments, vanity projects for themselves and their districts, we've highlighted a couple of uh, good examples here. One is a Republican, as you mentioned, Richard Shelby. So, Richard Shelby, his uh, he is. His alma mater is the University of Alabama, and his Senate archive is going to be housed there. In one of his last legislative actions, he earmarked $50 million into the University of Alabama, but not for a specific project. He earmarked it to their endowment. The endowment's a billion-dollar endowment. They didn't need taxpayer help. He put an additional $50 million into that endowment, You know, there's buildings named after him on campus at the University of Alabama, at Tuscaloosa, at Birmingham. He helped seed those buildings. So that's the example of Richard Shelby. Now, he was the ranking Republican on the Senate Appropriations Committee. The chairman of that Senate Appropriations Committee was the Democrat, Patrick Leahy. So what did Leahy do? This is his story. In one of his last legislative actions, he was also retiring. The University of Vermont was going to host his Senate archive. He earmarked them $30 million for their honors college. Here's what happened after he then left the Senate. Here in March, the university designated him as a presidential fellow, which is a permanent position at the university. Here's what happened in May. That honors college that got his $30 million earmark, they renamed it after him. But but Leahy did it again. Uh, the city of Burlington—they've got the Burlington International Airport. Leahy earmarked thirty-four million dollars into that airport, and guess what? The city council did in April—they renamed it after Patrick Leahy.
0: Also on this list, I'm looking at Senator Blunt from Missouri. Did he did he have any money uh, transferred to a center out at, uh, at one of the universities?
1: So Blunt, his earmarks dwarf Leahy's and Shelby's, incredibly, into the into the two universities in Missouri. So here's the story on Roy Blunt. Roy Blunt's also retiring from the US Senate and one of his last legislative actions. He earmarks $61 million into the University of Missouri. In 2021, the University of Missouri on their latest science building had named it after Roy Blunt. The earmark of $60 million goes into the building to upgrade its equipment and facilities that is named after him. And he did it again. His alma mater is Missouri State University. Uh, Two weeks before the vote, six months ago, in the omnibus spending bill, the university trustees renamed a building from Temple Hall to Roy Blunt Hall another science building and roy blunt earmarked into missouri state university into that building that bears his name 30 million dollars
0: i don't know how to ask this question but i'll just ask you why why are they doing this and why why do we not see any discussion of it in public before it happens
1: So our team at OpenTheBooks.com, we just unearthed this. Look, I think it's big news. They brought back earmarks on a bipartisan basis underneath the promise that you could not engage in self-dealing. I don't know how else to describe this. It's prima facie, self-dealing. This is corruption. This is exactly what should disturb the American people.
0: Senator Robert Byrd, who's been deceased for a number of years, Last count that I saw had 55 buildings or bridges named after him in the state of West Virginia. And his wife, Irma, had nine. Uh, Does this the kind of thing is it always gone on like this? And how how big is this giveaway to the states? Uh, Call them earmarks or whatever you want to call them.
1: So I think it's big. But uh, look, only in government can you get away with this. You couldn't get away with this in the private sector. So only in government can you earmark people money and then create vanity projects to yourself. And I think Congress needs to crack down. I mean, they need to get serious on ethics. When earmarks were banned for a decade, 90 percent of Republicans were against earmarks and 80 percent of Democrats. That's why they instituted the ban. They brought them back saying that it's going to be a new day, but our data shows that nothing's new here. We've got more examples. The congressional representative from Baltimore, Maryland, Kawase and Fumai, he earmarked $2 million to the local Great Blacks in Wax Museum. That museum had ensconced him with a wax figurine six months earlier. There were se- there were four members of the House, one Republican, three Democrats, that earmarked six million dollars into institutions where their wives work. That's their wives were either in executive positions or tenured professor positions. You got the retiring member of Congress, the Democrat Jim Cooper. He earmarked two point seven million dollars into Metro Nashville, where his brother is the mayor. Earmarks are irregular. It's a, it's fleecing, it's pork, it's the currency of corruption in Congress. So we're calling on House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy doesn't take earmarks himself, but he let the Republicans bring back earmarks on a secret vote where 158 Republicans in, in January... They voted to join Pelosi Democrats to bring back this corrupt practice. We're calling on McCarthy for an up or down public vote in the well of the House to see who's in and who's out on earmarks.
0: I would guess just from past uh, research that the state of Alaska on a percentage basis probably gets more federal dollars than any other state on a percentage basis. And then I look at your list and it shows Senator Murkowski, Lisa Murkowski $489 Five, $489 million worth of earmarks. This is in addition to all the other money they, cur- they get on a year-to-year basis. What did, what's, what's that money going to?
1: So in Alaska, I don't have to break down a Murkowski's earmarks, and we've got to get on that as, a, as an audit team. But I can break down another small-state Republican U.S. Senator, Susan Collins and Angus King, her Democratic independent counterpart, he caucuses with the Democrats. Two, He's a former governor of Maine.
0: 200 million, so, earmarked. So
1: they together they did 200 million. Susan Collins herself did 100 million. Uh, King by himself did 22 million. So you add all that up, it's a little over $300 million. But here's the rest of the story, Brian. For 2024, Collins and King have submitted requests for $1.4 billion. So the point is, this is quickly going off the rails. This practice of earmarks is quickly going off the rails. We've got all these examples from the last earmark session in the omnibus spending bill of corruption, and then everybody has seen the quote-unquote success at bringing home the bacon to their district, and they're loading up.
0: Adam, who tracks this in the Congress? How much discussion is there? Who makes the decision that yes, you can get your one point four billion or you can get your fifty billion for the University of Alabama?
1: Well, it's a it's a vague, it's a vague, you know, often look, it's a not a it's not a transparent process. These earmarks are written in vague terms. It's not like a federal contract or a federal grant, which hasn't a grant making agreement attached to it, which outlines specifics and priorities and clawback options on behalf of taxpayers. These earmarks, the language is loose and the process is not transparent. There's supposed to be an appropriations committee that sign off on this. But like in the U.S. Senate, if you have the ranking Republican on the appropriations committee and the Democratic chairman getting together, there's no one to stop them.
0: You're too young to remember H.R. Gross. I'm not. He was a congressman from Iowa, and he was called the reigning curmudgeon, and he would stay in the House of Representatives every day until the sessions were over and be watchdog on. He'd read every bill. Uh, Anybody like that today?
1: Well, we've worked very closely with U.S. Senator Joni Ernst from Iowa. So, for example, we crunched the numbers since 2017 on the U.S. taxpayer payments to the adversarial nations of China and Russia, and we came up with $1.3 billion paid to entities within those two countries. She quickly wrote a piece of legislation to help cure this problem. There's two amendments that she she has submitted, uh, which have a lot of forward momentum, on the National Defense Authorization Act currently being debated in Congress. The first amendment would be to cut all payments to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. We had found additional payments into that institute that had never been disclosed before. The second amendment would be to mandate an audit on EcoHealth Alliance. They were the organization being primarily funded through federal grants and then on pass-through grants they, those dollars then flowed to the Wuhan Institute. They, The thinking is that Health Alliance also funded gain-of-function studies elsewhere at foreign labs around the world, and this legislation would tie all that out. And then, uh, you know, there's a transparency problem at the federal level, Brian, that her legislation would cure. Uh, second and third tier grants are never disclosed. We can only go down one level on sub-tier grants and so all of that would then be subject to transparency. We'd be able to to follow the money better on a go-forward basis. Hey,
0: explain that. I don't, I mean, what do you mean by the different tiers and what do you mean you can't get at the third and fourth tiers?
1: So right now when a federal agency makes a grant, say to EcoHealth Alliance, and EcoHealth Alliance does a sub-grant to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, that's all tracked. But if the Institute of uh, at, at Wuhan, if the institute there does another subgrant somewhere else, that's not tracked. So we have no idea where U.S. taxpayer dollars flow after the first level of sub-grant making.
0: So are you saying that we're still giving money to Wuhan?
1: I'm not sure what the current status of it is right now. Uh, the Ernst legislation would prevent The Department of Defense from giving any money to Wuhan on a go-forward basis?
0: History. Senator William Proxmire, a Democrat from Wisconsin, had something called the Golden Fleece Award. And I've got a list of some of the things that he would give a Golden Fleece to. Uh, But before I do that, what's your knowledge of him? And uh, what, what what do you think of what he did?
1: So we're privileged to quote Bill Proxmire as much as we possibly can, the good Democrat from the state of Wisconsin. I actually have his book right behind me on the shelf called The Fleecing of America and his device to showcase waste, fraud, corruption, and abuse. The Golden Fleece Award was named by the Washington Post in the 20th century of being the best political device that had been created. Uh, So we... We think the world of Proxmire. What's not typically known about Proxmire is he never missed a U.S. Senate vote. He went 20,000 votes in a row over a 20-year period where he never missed a vote in the U.S. Senate. So that's just another, another good fact to the reputation of Bill Proxmire.
0: Let me read uh, a couple of uh, the Golden Fleece Awards from the past, and this is some time ago. National Science Foundation for spending 103000 to compare aggressiveness in sunfish that drink tequila as opposed to gin. National Institute of Mental Health for spending 97000 to study, among other things, what went on in a Peruvian brothel. The researchers said they made repeated visits in the interest of accuracy. Office of Education for spending 219592 in a curriculum package to teach college students how to watch television. I'm going to keep going because the more you hear, the more interesting it gets. United States Department of the Army for a $6,000 study on how to buy Worcestershire sauce in 1981. United States Department of Commerce Economic Development Administration for spending $20,000 to build a 10-story replica of the Great Wall excuse me, of China, and of all places, Bedford, Indiana, begun in 1979. The money proved insufficient, and the site is currently abandoned. Your take on any of those?
1: (laughs) So, real clear politics, over the course of the past year and a half, on Thursdays, we do a throwback Thursday, Every single we highlight a waste of the day, but on Thursdays we take a look back, and we've we've used virtually only Bill Proxmire's golden fleeces for those Thursday lookbacks. One of the other uh, golden fleeces that he gave was to the FAA. In today's dollars, inflation adjusted, it'd be about three hundred grand, so a significant amount of money. It was a study of four hundred and forty-two flight attendants where they took their measurements, including when they were sitting how far apart their knees were, and when they were standing the length of their buttocks.
0: More from Golden Fleece, United States Department of Defense for $3,000 to study to determine if people in the military should carry umbrellas in the rain. How does this, I, you know, I don't wanna sound indignant, but how in the world does this keep happening?
1: Well, it keeps happening because Something happens when you go to Washington, D.C. And so, Brian, look, here's the earmark, the only earmark that I would support a million dollar study. Let's throw it to the best Ivy League school in America on why members of Congress need to spend billions of our taxpayer money on vanity projects for themselves. Let's study their egos.
0: Senator Inhofe also left the Senate and he had a huge number of $510 million in earmarks. Anything you have on him and what he spent that money on?
1: So we should do a a, a deep dive into him because obviously he comes from the great state of Oklahoma and that's that's Tom Coburn's uh, former state. So we do need to take a look at this uh, much deeper. Here are some examples of earmarks that I think would drive everybody drive everyone crazy listening to the program we identified one million dollars uh one one million one million dollars on the uh macadamia nuts study out of hawaii uh three million dollars to turn pittsburgh into hollywood we identified 3.6 million dollars on phase two of the extension of the michelle obama trail down in atlanta georgia where phase one was paid for by locally, county taxpayers. Phase two, when they brought back earmarks, is paid for by you and I. But that earmark is dwarfed by the $5 million from the Republican, Byron Donalds, in Naples, Florida. Naples, Florida, the average home price is $600,000, and Donalds earmarked $5 million into the Naples septic project, phase two, where phase one was paid for by locally and the state of Florida. Our tax dollars literally were flushed down the drain in Naples, Florida.
0: What's uh, Let me start with you. What was your background in order to even get into
1: this? So my background is one of being a private sector entrepreneur. So in 1997, my brother and I, from scratch, from our apartments, We founded a publishing company, and over a 10-year period, we grew it to $20 million in sales with hundreds of employees. And Brian, actually, that's why I fight so hard, because here's our story. In year one, we were upside down. Our entire net worth, my brother and I, we had about $100,000 between us invested in the business, and that was was all the money in the world to us. At the end of year three, we hit a million dollars worth of sales, But that was the year we nearly lost the business. And but for another dime's worth of taxes, regulations, and fees, we would have been out of business in year three. Uh, Up until year five, we'd make a little bit. My brother would call me with a capital call, and the money would go back into the business to grow the business. In year six, we were a $5 million company. And that was the first year that we actually out-earned our employees. Until then, every employee out-earned my brother and I in year uh, 6 at 5 million dollars by the end of year 10 we were a 20 million dollar business and an overnight success look success in america it's always impossible but by, but for sheer force of will an entrepreneur is able to pull it out we were the only ones that believed in our business up until year 10 you know our line of credit was $25,000 Nobody believed in our business model except my brother and I. We we pulled it out with our employees by sheer force of will.
0: As you know, if you run a 501c3 company, your salary, especially somebody like you, is available to the public to see. Right. You can, you can get on. The tax forms are online. You can find them and find out what somebody makes. I've looked at yours, and I know you don't make much more than 150000 if that much, but... W- why is it that companies, you know, nonprofit companies are required to do this and the federal government isn't required to do things like the vice president and other things? And NIH, I don't care where it is. Uh, and, and I guess it's leading up to I want you to grade the government, grade the government as to how open it is, what the transparency rating would be.
1: So the federal government gets a D plus C minus, And here's why. No transparency at the Office of Vice President, little transparency at the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve claims they don't have a vendor spending list, a vendor spending checkbook, and they'll only give us 269 out of 23,000 employees with their salaries. Uh, the executive federal agencies now, these are the rank and file, the 120 three federal agencies, the alphabet soup of agencies that we all recognize, like the IRS, like the EPA, like Health and Human Services, like Social Security. There's 1.44 million federal employees that work in those agencies. The Biden administration just redacted 350,000 names from the responsive record. To put that in context, during the last year of the Obama administration, they redacted 2300 names. Now it's three hundred and fifty thousand names that we we don't have any longer. They redacted one hundred and twenty thousand work locations. So Brian, think of this. We don't know who is receiving how much and we don't know where or if they're working. It's really a where's Waldo now in the federal executive agencies in the rank and file agencies that are supposed to be working on our behalf.
0: You know, I can just hear somebody that I know, if I say they said, what's your latest podcast that I said, I'm talking to Adam uh, Angievsky and we're talking about uh, the money that the government spends and all this stuff. They say, I can just hear them say, why are you bothering? Nobody cares about this. Nobody's paying any attention to it. What do you, what would you say to them?
1: I, I, I'd say that people do care and corruption is a 90 plus percent issue. And so what we do at OpenTheBooks.com, we show you exactly how bad it is. Our mission at OpenTheBooks.com is very similar to the mission at C-SPAN. At C-SPAN, you go gavel to gavel, you broadcast 24-7 what happens in Congress, and then you do special reports to go a little deeper to expose and to educate the American people. At OpenTheBooks.com, we post nearly, not quite, but nearly every dime taxed and spent at every level of government across the country so people can follow the money. And then we go a level deeper. We do special reports like our report on earmarks to expose and educate the American people.
0: So what else is, I mean, you talk about the, the, the local level and the state level. Uh, I, I did check on some of that, and I noticed that some of the states pay their public officials far more money than the feds do. And can you give us any examples of that? I mean, in particular, I think I saw California pay, pays a lot of money to their public servants.
1: Yes, so for example, I think my favorite, my favorite example, Brian, in this regard, unfortunately, are the lifeguards in Los Angeles County. We identified that there are 98 LA County lifeguards that last year made more than two hundred thousand dollars. Twenty of them made more than three hundred thousand dollars. Three of them made more than four hundred thousand dollars. And the top paid LA County lifeguard last year made five hundred and ten thousand dollars. I guess life's a beach if you're an LA County <laughs> lifeguard.
0: Did anybody? Do you talk to anybody about why they're why they're worth that much?
1: <laughs> well, they're not worth that much, but the cash compensation is only a part. Of their overall compensation package. Uh, For example, the three LA County lifeguards that made more than $400,000, they also had a perk, which is a take home vehicle, a Toyota Sequoia truck. And then it's 30 years and out with 79% of your cash compensation for the rest of your life on a lifetime taxpayer paid pension.
0: What percentage of your, uh, your, uh, Freedom of information requests are granted?
1: That's a good question. So it it truly depends by agency. But I can tell you across the country, we filed two requests with about 50,000 of the most substantial public bodies in the country. And by and large, all 50,000 comply with our requests. Number one, it's a request for their payroll and cash compensation information. And number two, it's a request for their vendor checkbook information. So, for example, on payrolls, we've compiled for the first time in American history the production of virtually every single public employee at the federal, state, and local level across the country. 25 million uh, public employees we have in our salary database. So if you're listening to the podcast, you can come to OpenTheBooks.com and write into your local municipal level units your school district your city your county your townships the state employees we've assembled virtually every single a record of virtually every single person who works for government
0: anybody ever sue you for anything
1: Ah, uh, so there about eight years ago uh we were sued for an oversight investigation in illinois um it, it was in federal court uh I was dismissed from the case. And then about seven years ago, seven, eight years ago, uh, I was personally sued for an investigation that we did here in Illinois with our local junior college. And we've pushed over the years to clear our names. It's still it's still in the discovery uh, phase of that suit after eight years. So hopefully we'll have resolution on that uh, shortly. It was not for anything I wrote. It was uh, they tacked me on uh, the suit uh, as a conspiracy charge to defame a uh, contractor of the junior college. So a very specious way to try to get to me.
0: Give you a moment. You can think up some examples of your your own, but I'm going back to the Golden Fleece uh, Awards that uh, Bill Proxmire gave. United States Department of Justice for conducting a study on why prisoners want to escape United States Postal Service for spending over $4 million on an advertisement campaign to make Americans write more letters to one another. Executive Office of the President for spending $611,000 to restore a room in the old executive office building with gold trim. Uh, do you have anything like that that uh, comes to mind of uh, s- examples?
1: Yeah, so just from the, the earmarks package that passed six months ago in Congress, In Pennsylvania, there was a half million dollars for a minor league baseball field to put AstroTurf on it. There was $1.5 million on an earmark into Cleveland, Ohio, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, $3 million went into Chicago from Chewy Garcia into the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. There was a brand new museum in Los Angeles that's going to be started up. $7 million on an earmark went into the uh, Nash, National American Korean Museum. One point six million went into New York City into the Italian American Museum. Uh, we've got um, uh, we've you know rich institutions like Columbia University, thirteen billion dollar endowment. They received a three million dollar earmark. What's the public purpose to compel working and middle class taxpayers to fund earmarks into an Ivy League college? You got. Uh, you got the Field Museum in Chicago. Their CEO made $1.1 million last year and they took 3.5 million in two earmarks from members of Congress. You got the New York City Botanical Garden and they took a million dollar earmark and their CEO made $1.4 million last year. You got the schools of the California university system. There's a $20 billion endowment that backed those public schools. And they took $11 million in earmarks, you and I funding those schools with a $20 billion endowment.
0: I have in front of me uh, something called Federal Fumbles, Volume 6, that uh, it comes from Senator James Lankford, a Republican of Oklahoma, following up to Tom Coburn. Do you follow his stuff?
1: Yeah, every single year when that comes out, we definitely take a look at it. And that forms some of our waste of the day pieces for Real Clear. This is our daily column, the waste of the day at Real Clear Investigations. And, and sometimes we'll showcase examples from that exact report.
0: Here's a couple of things Border Boondoggle, page 17. Biden was so determined to leave the border open that he spent $2 billion to not build the border wall. Did you follow that story?
1: I didn't follow that one. It's a target-rich environment, Brian, across the entire continuum. Uh, One of the things that we've been following are pop-up projects. So these earmarks, like, for instance, in Maine, Susan Collins, she earmarked $4 million into a library in a town of 850 people called Patton, Maine. The nonprofit that is receiving the money was so new, they weren't even registered, as a public charity in Maine. And you've got other examples like that across the country as well.
0: How much did you follow the expenditures during COVID?
1: Well, we did a lot of COVID aid oversight on waste fraud, corruption, and abuse. So it was two years ago when we uh, came out with the estimate that COVID fraud would rival a half trillion dollars and be the greatest public fraud in the history of the country.
0: How did it happen?
1: Uh, Loose systems, lack of in-house accounting control, and the fear that the pandemic would hit the country so hard that the only goal of Congress was to flood the entire system with Benjamins.
0: Is there any interest in clawbacking some of that money?
1: Well, I hope so, because a lot of the waste fraud, corruption, and abuse was perfectly legal. So I'm going to give you two examples of how the system was gamed by wealthy insiders. So the first example are the largest law firms in the country. 126 of the top 300 largest law firms in the country. Our auditors at OpenTheBooks.com quantified those law firms received $800 million worth of forgiven Paycheck Protection Program loans. So basically, it was a grant to the top largest law firms in the country. PPP money, that was supposed to go to mom and pop businesses on Main Street. Many of those folks had their business shut down during the economic lockdown. And $800 million of it went to law firms. We took a look at the equity profits of the partners during this period of those law firms and they were making millions. There was absolutely no financial need to receive the those those that money. So I think those partners need to the managing partners of those top firms need to be hauled up in Congress to explain themselves. Here's another example. The top 20 largest hospitals in America during the pandemic their net assets exploded by $124 billion. Those top 20 nonprofit hospitals took $23 billion worth of COVID aid bailouts. Again, they didn't need the money. Now, Mayo Clinic paid back half of theirs and Kaiser Permanente paid back all of theirs. We're calling on the rest of those hospitals to pay back theirs as well. That's $23 billion. Every dime was borrowed up against the national debt.
0: Government Accountability Office, do they do anything like this?
1: Well, the the GAO, I mean, they are the federal watchdogs, and by and large, they do a good job. There are holes in their work. Earlier, we talked about the payments to Russia and China. So Congress charged the GAO with quantifying U.S. taxpayer funds into China since 2017. And they actually came up with a figure of $48 million of payments. When we did that at openthebooks.com, quantified the payments into China since 2017, we came up with 10 times as much, 490. Million dollars, and that's because we went deeper than they did. They only went with the direct grants and contracts, we went into that sub grants and contracts to tie out even more money. And obviously, the Ernst legislation, as we talked about, would open up second and third tier grants as well, or even more money would be able to be tracked and followed.
0: You told us earlier that there are 35 people working for you. Are those full time? Yes. How do you train yourself to do the kind of work that you're doing?
1: Well, we operate by two rules. One, the two pizza rule. If the team is larger, if the if the team is larger than can be fed by two pizzas, the team's too big. Here's the second rule. You got to earn the right. You know, I read that Frank Sinatra, he didn't start out on the national stage. He started out there in the small bars where hardly anybody visited. He honed his craft in New Jersey. And then after he paid his dues, he worked out all the bugs. Eventually he was ready to go to the national stage. And that's our story at openthebooks.com. We've gotten started in the Super Bowl of corruption right here in Illinois. In the small towns, the counties, the junior colleges, right here in Illinois, after we hone that good government model using transparency, forensic auditing, we've taken it writ large across the country.
0: Do they all have college educations? Are they accountants? Uh, Are they paralegal types? What kind of people work for you?
1: So it it depends on the team. So we really have two teams at openthebooks.com. One is the data capture team. And that's where a majority of our employees reside because there's about 22 of them and they have to file fifty thousand Freedom of Information Act requests. Follow up with those requests. Accept the production. Break it open. Map the production to our website, to our map interactive maps, and our mobile app. So uh, those people actually, um, you know, I would I've never taken a look at, at at the education, but I would say most of them are college graduates. Uh, on the oversight team. That's the team I run. Uh, everybody's a college grad. Uh, We've got great talent we've got folks that graduated from the University of Chicago we've got uh, people that have MBAs from Oxford graduate degrees uh, graduate degrees uh, MBAs from the uh, London School of Economics graduate degrees from Oxford um, you know undergraduate degrees from the University of Virginia so it's a really talented team.
0: How often do you add new things to your website?
1: I would say a couple of times a week. We're going to do 700 investigations this year, up from 500 last year and 300 the previous year. So, Brian, the fly, the flywheel is spinning faster.
0: You say you had a $3 million a year budget. Where does that money, it, it, does it come in big chunks or are they small contributions?
1: So, so we have approximately 3,000 small-dollar donors. But, Brian, I would say that our top... 150 donors fund the majority of the enterprise.
0: Why do they do it?
1: They believe that transparency revolutionizes U.S. public policy and politics, just like we do. We think it's the absolute biggest idea in public policy and politics is this idea of transparency. In real time, if the people, the politicians, the press, the pundits, if we can follow the money then you know, we'll get better outcomes with the spending.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I, you're openthebooks.com, and if you go .org, you're not gonna get your service, because I did it too many times, but even though you're a nonprofit, it's openthebooks.com, and anybody yeah. can go there, and, and if they wanna donate, of course, there's a donate button, but, uh, it, it, do you have to pay for any access to any of your information?
1: It's we. There is no payment required, Brian. So we're a public charity. We take that mission very seriously. Uh, so if you come to OpenTheBooks.com, you can search everything without without making you know a donation. The only wall we have for access is after five searches of our data. It's an email wall. So we just ask for your email address. That would put you on our breaking news list. But that's it. That's the only wall we have. There's no paywall to access our data or our site.
0: Founder of openthebooks.com, Adam Angievsky, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you very much, Brian. Thanks for listening to the BookNotes Plus podcast. Please rate and review BookNotes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c span.org.